Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, there were not a lot of new movies that came out this past weekend. In fact, there was one movie that came out, which I'm going to review first in the show, that I didn't actually include on my last segment of last week's show, What's Coming Up Next, because it wasn't on my list of movies. There was only one movie listed, and I couldn't find that movie in any theater Uh, in which I looked, but this gives me an opportunity actually to catch up on some other films that I've seen over the past couple of weeks, but I have not been able to review for you for this show. First though, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is what I believe is the newest film to hit theaters for the weekend of February 25th, 2022. And that movie is studio six, six, six. This is a film that was not particularly well advertised. As a matter of fact, the only advertisement I saw of it was a poster in a movie theater. But this is a movie that has the legendary rock band Foo Fighters, who have been together for, if you can believe it, 28 years, or it will be 28 years in a few months. And that is an eternity in rock and roll history. In fact, I think there have only been three bands that I know of four that have been together longer and have experienced uh, the success that uh, the Foo Fighters have had. And they are the Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, Green Day, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. There may be more, but uh, those are the ones that are probably the most prominent. But this movie, Studio 666, is based upon a story that Dave Grohl came up with And the screenplay was written by Jeff Bueller and Rebecca Hughes. And the movie is directed by B.J. McDonnell, who's not a particularly well-known name, at least not a household name. But he has had a lot of experience directing. Before he directed Studio 666, he actually directed a documentary about Slayer, which was called The Repentless Killology. And he also directed a movie in 2013 called Hatchet 3, neither of which I've seen. So he's had a bunch of experience directing uh, music videos, particularly uh, for Slayer. But this, as far as I know, is his first collaboration with the Foo Fighters. And this is also the first time that the Foo Fighters have played themselves in what I am quite sure is a fictional movie, not based on real-life events. So in this movie, the Foo Fighters move into an Encino mansion steeped in grisly rock and roll history to record their much anticipated 10th album. So the backstory you get behind this Encino mansion is that there was another band from the nineties who recorded a legendary album in that mansion, but it was never released because all of the band members were murdered mysteriously Uh, before the album could even see the light of day. So not only were the band members killed, but the album itself was lost. So um, what else can I say about this? Well, this is not actually a new concept. There have been bands before that have recorded in um, notorious places. For example, Black Sabbath and Radiohead at various points, Uh, points of time have recorded in 
gothic castles that were reputed to be haunted. And before I looked those anecdotes up, I was immediately reminded the plot of this movie of Nine Inch Nails recording their landmark 1994 album, The Downward Spiral, at a mansion in uh, L.A., specifically um, 10,050 Cielo Drive, which was where Sharon Tate, her three friends, and her unborn baby were senselessly murdered by members of the Manson family in 1969. Now, uh, 10,050 Cielo Drive has since been demolished, but I would imagine that I would feel so uncomfortable spending five minutes standing in the lobby of uh, 10,050 Cielo Drive. I couldn't imagine moving in there or recording an album, especially after the murders that took place there, but that's what Trent Reznor did uh, with his band Nine Inch Nails. And uh, it worked out very well for him because the Downward Spiral was a critical and commercial success. So the Foo Fighters in this movie take the same kind of creative cue and move into this mansion. And all the members of the Foo Fighters play themselves, most notably Dave Grohl, who is the lead singer and guitarist, Nate Mendel, who is the bassist, Pat Smear, who is the rhythm guitarist, Taylor Hawkins, who is the drummer, Chris Shiflett, who is the uh, rhythm guitarist, oh, excuse me, the lead guitarist, and Rami Jaffe, who is the uh, keyboardist. So other than Dave Grohl, a lot of the other band members don't exactly have a ton of acting experience, but Dave Grohl's acting experience is mainly limited to playing himself and making cameos in movies such as the newest Bill and Ted film, but he has actually played a few other characters before. Most notably, Dave Grohl played the devil in the Tenacious D movie, The Pick of Destiny, which was unfortunately a critical and commercial failure, but I saw it and I thought it was hilarious. I think a lot of critics dismissed it as a stoner comedy like Cheech and Chong, and there's nothing wrong with that. Plus, I always think Jack Black is hilarious. I don't know why that movie didn't exactly catch on when it was when it was released, but I think it's slowly growing a cult following, or at least I can certainly appreciate it. And Studio 666 is not a drama based on um, the Foo Fighters recording their 10th album. It is a horror comedy. And I think that this um, documentary takes, excuse me, this movie takes a lot of artistic liberty, not to mention inspiration, not only from the real-life incidents of rock bands recording in notorious places, but also some other elements of movies like This Is Spinal Tap and even... Um, uh, the, the Evil Dead films, particularly where there's a plot twist involving a book that's known as the Book of the Dead, which is exactly what the book was named in the Army of Darkness, excuse me, well, Army of Darkness and the uh, other two Evil Dead films directed by Sam Raimi. I don't exactly know if Sam Raimi could sue for trademark infringement but he does at least have a convincing enough case to go to trial. But then again, I'm not influencing him to do one thing or the other. But 
putting aside those obvious influences, I was actually very entertained by Studio 666. Yeah, the acting of the Foo Fighters isn't great, but I didn't expect them to be Sir Lawrence Olivier or Marlon Brando. I do think the fact that they've been a band for nearly 30 years, the chemistry that is between these band members is very evident here. And I do think they actually play off well alongside each other, as they probably should, having been a band that's been together for that long. And there are also uh, plot elements in here that I can't exactly pinpoint to another movie, but I've seen them before, particularly the songwriter and lead singer who gets so obsessed with recording this album that no matter how many bad things happen in their recording space, he just wants to keep on recording the album and he becomes more obsessed, more micromanaging, and also because of the paranormal entities in this Encino mansion, he becomes also more evil. And when people in this movie get killed, it shouldn't be funny, but it actually is. For instance, there's a scene where two people are having sex I'm not going to tell you who, but they're actually killed in their bed. When I say that, it's not funny, but the way they are killed, I saw and I absolutely burst out laughing. And there are some other very creative kills in this film as well that, again, shouldn't be funny when I'm telling you about them, but when you see them on the screen, they actually do work out really well. And interestingly enough, Dave Grohl does have a very good sense of comic timing. And that probably, as I said, came from his collaborations with Jack Black and Tenacious D. Uh, There's also um, a pretty good uh, supporting cast. For instance, um, of all the cameos that could happen in a film about rock and roll, there's actually a very funny cameo in this film by Lionel Richie, which was startling based on its setup, but also very unexpected. And I really liked uh, Lionel Richie's cameo in here. I also really liked Will Forte, who plays a delivery boy who or a delivery man, and he is actually credited as delivery man, but he plays a guy who is part of a second-rate rock and roll band who's trying to get his demo CD to Dave Grohl. Of course, when in Rome, you definitely do as the Romans do. And uh, also Jeff Garland appears in this movie as the Foo Fighters manager, and he is kind of who you'd expect both from where you've seen the the characters that Jeff Garland has played before, particularly on shows like uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where he plays you know, a very grumpy and demanding manager. And certainly in this film, that's no exception. And the next door neighbor of this haunted Encino mansion is a woman named Samantha, who's played by Whitney Cummings, who is not my favorite actress or comedian, but I think she does okay here. And there's actually one scene where she's introduced to the Foo Fighters and she says, Hey, if you ever need a lead singer or or ever need a backup singer, and then she starts bursting into uh, the song, the best of you. Normally I don't find Whitney Cummings funny, but actually that was pretty funny itself. So I do acknowledge that Studio 666, especially given its name and how it's the number of the devil, is not going to be to everyone's tastes. 
I do think that fans of horror movies, not to mention horror comedies, will like it. I think that um, fans of the Foo Fighters um, will like this film as well. I know I certainly enjoyed it. Again, uh, it had its weaknesses in the sense that the Foo Fighters, the, the members of the bands with the exception of Dave Grohl, are used to being in the spotlight, but not necessarily used to being in a movie where they're the central figures. So the acting wasn't particularly great. And I, I do understand that there was some inspiration from other uh, rockumentaries, rock and roll movies, and horror comedies. But I think sometimes they laid it a little thick on their inspiration and it seemed a bit more like plagiarizing. But I do think that when this movie was at its goriest, it was also at its funniest, which is why I give Studio 666 my rating of a checkout because it's not a film that's for everybody, but I do see it achieving a bit of cult status. If it doesn't do particularly well in movie theaters, and I doubt that it will given its weakness in advertising, not to mention um, the the fact that it it has the name that it does. It's not suited for everyone, but I certainly enjoyed Studio 666, which is why I'm giving it my rating of a checkout because it was funny, it was gory, and that's really all it needed to be. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Let me just say before I get into my next review that I was doing my segment last week, What's Coming Up Next, and I detail the movies that are coming out in theaters as well as the movies that are being released on streaming. And one of the movies that I was mentioning that was being released on Netflix As a Netflix original, I said, I will review it for you as much as I will probably not like this film on next week's show. Well, promise kept. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Tyler Perry's A Medea Homecoming. What really pisses me off about this film is that back in 2019, Tyler Perry released A Medea Family Funeral, which he said, which he promised would be the last Medea movie. He said it would be the last. Did I shed any tears? No, I did not. Because the Medea films are freaking lame. Now, take this in comparison with Robert Redford. Robert Redford in 2018 came out with a film called The Old Man and the Gun. And he said this would be his last movie. So far, he has kept that promise, which is really sad because I like Robert Redford and I love seeing him in movies, but it wasn't his last film. It was the last film in which he starred where he's had a leading role, but as it turns out, he was in 
an animated film called Buttons, which I actually didn't see. He was the narrator of that film. He made a credited cameo in Avengers Endgame. And he was also in another animated film, which I didn't see, called Omniboat, a fast boat fantasia. I would love to see Robert Redford make another movie at least before he dies. Medea, I just want to die. Now, don't get me wrong. I do not want Tyler Perry to die. I don't hate him. But God damn it, I hate that character, Medea. And the reason I hate her so much is because A, she's not funny. B, she's been in way too many movies and for that matter plays. And C, I have seen Tyler Perry do better in other films. He is a good actor. Gone Girl, where he plays a Johnny Cochran-like lawyer, has been his best movie to date. He can do and has done so much better than that freaking Medea character and her, and her annoying uh, brother Joe, who looks like an old man who has his the skin on his face rotting off. I can't tell whether that's shoddy makeup or that's supposed to be a joke. But anyway, a Medea homecoming. So what does homecoming mean? Well, this may be a Southern thing, but I always considered homecoming like a big game at your alma mater, for example, whether it's high school or college. This is the one where it really, really matters when the home team wins. Is that what a Madea homecoming is about? No, it isn't. It has nothing to do with sports. Instead, Madea's back, hallelujah, says the uh, premise that I'm supposed to read for you. And she's not putting up with any nonsense as family drama erupts as her great-grandson's college graduation celebration. Now, I did say when I was reading this premise or this uh, plot synopsis, I said, let me guess, somebody's cheating on somebody else. Well, to Tyler Perry's credit, and I will give him a little tiny sliver of credit here, Infidelity is not exactly a part of this movie, but it doesn't make it any better because Medea is talking up a goddamn storm. Joe is blabbing, and there are also some very off-color and tasteless sex jokes here, and sometimes I can find off-color and uh, tasteless sex jokes very funny, Coming from uh, Tyler Perry, who has no sense of comic timing whatsoever, in my opinion, it's just a headache. It really is. And to make matters worse, Tyler Perry is not the only one in drag. As it turns out, his uh, her, uh, Medea's uh, great-grandson, Tim, is graduating from college, an unnamed HBCU, along with his best friend, Davi, who is an Irish... Uh, Dutch immigrant who also has some African um, blood in him uh, because he's he's part black and he's played by uh, Isha Blacker um, last name spelled B-L-A-A-K-E-R so I'm not sure if that's pronounced Blacker or Blocker I don't know but anyway his Irish uh, relatives who are white uh, come to visit him on his graduation and one of his uh, relatives is an aunt by the name of Agnes Brown, who's played by Brendan O'Carroll. So Tyler Perry is not the only one in drag here, but unlike Tyler Perry, 
Brendan O'Carroll, to his credit, actually looks like a woman. Um, he actually kind of looked like one of my grandparents. But anyway, um, I guess Brendan O'Carroll was serviceable in this role, but there's a very tired uh, subplot that tends to occur in certain African-American movies, particularly those by Tyler Perry, where there is a white person or white people who come to visit and something racist allegedly slips out. And there's a part where Brendan O'Carroll as Agnes Brown says to the uh, black family of Medea, it looks like you all have your knickers in a bunch. And as you might expect, the characters played by Tyler Perry and only the characters played by Tyler Perry overreact, thinking that when he said knickers, he said niggers. That's, of course, not what he said. But even when some of the black people not played by Tyler Perry try to explain to the characters played by Tyler Perry that he said knickers with a N-I-C-K-E-R-S like underwear, they are still not convinced that he didn't say niggers. So... Again, it goes on for five minutes to the point where you just want to slap the wig right off Medea's head and say, listen, this is what she said. Would you stop milking this for what it's worth? Actually, you're not even really milking it for what it's worth. You've already milked it three seconds ago. (sighs) And and this is what Medea does to me. And I also don't really understand... I guess Medea is supposed to be a a comic relief character for the people in Georgia who frequently go to church. She's supposed to be comic relief for the the people who see this kinds of these kinds of movies. But I don't exactly get what is redeemable about Medea's character. In addition to the fact that she's not funny. She's an embodiment of all seven deadly sins combined into one person that you probably could be if you're not Donald Trump. And also, there are other segments in this film, like there's a black and white segment where Medea is a younger person, again, played by Tyler Perry in drag. And um, apparently, she she, she comes home and she finds that her husband and her roommate Rose have left her and she's walking around the apartment basically saying things that should not be spoken. What I mean by that is she looks around and she sees empty drawers and she goes, Oh, the drawers are empty. And she goes around looking for her husband and she says, Oh, I can't find my husband. These are very obvious things to say, you know, you, you could just look around, not say anything, and find that the drawers are empty, that your husband has taken uh, his things, not to mention run away with another woman named Rose. You didn't even have to really say that. And then there's another scene where she goes to the NAACP office where her friend Rose works, and she's going around going, where the hell is Rose? And these people who are working at the NAACP are looking at her, um as probably anybody else would who just barges into an office and rages. But instead of looking around for this person, Rose, 
Tyler Perry as Medea just starts going around the walls and tearing down the posters as if her friend Rose is behind those posters. And then you find out later that she finds out that her friend Rose is on a bus. And then it's revealed that her friend is Rose as in Rosa, as in Rosa Parks. But it doesn't make any sense because she finds her friend Rosa Parks on a bus. She takes out a knife, Medea does, uh, slashes the tires of the bus, and Rosa Parks just sits there. And apparently... Somebody who's a knife-wielding maniac is the reason behind Rosa Parks sitting at her seat and not moving even for the next white person who tries to take her seat. Which doesn't make any sense! Because if a knife-wielding maniac is coming after you when you're on a bus and slashes your tires, why would you just sit there? It doesn't make any sense! So, do I really have to leave you in anticipation of what I think of Tyler Perry's and Medea Homecoming? No, I don't. It is a flunk out. And the more I think about the Medea movies, the more I get angry because I respect Tyler Perry. I do think he is talented. I commend him for coming up with original stories and for basically building an empire. The fact that Tyler Perry built his own movie studio in Atlanta, Georgia is great, but I would admire him a lot more if he took the studio and made better movies added to the fact that as, um, he's not only the the guy who plays Medea and Joe in this movie, he also executive produced, wrote it and directed it this movie. And it shows that he cannot direct comedies. Maybe he does dramas. I've I've seen a couple. I don't know. But it just shows he can't make movies. He really can't. He's a good actor. He's definitely uh, admirably ambitious. He's definitely created an empire by making Tyler Perry Studios. But his Medea character, not to mention Joe just undermines his comedic talent. And honestly, there was nothing in this film that was funny. And and let me assure you, Tyler Perry was not the only unfunny person in this movie. There's also a character named Bam, who's played by Cassie Davis, who's been a confidant of Medea's for all those other films. She's not funny. She is a woman in her late forties who's playing somebody in her late eighties. There's also a character named Mr. Brown. Who's apparently the star of the play, the movie and the show meet the Browns. He's played by David Mann. Same idea. Guy in his forties playing a guy in his eighties. Uh, I think I've spoken enough about this. I am just, (laughs) I just have to move on because this character Medea is so obnoxious I just wish Medea would die. I don't wish Tyler Perry would die, but he should kill off Medea because she is literally and figuratively getting old.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Scream. Scream is a film that came out on January 14th, so it's been a while since this has been in theaters, but I just got to review it this week, and it is the fifth of the Scream movies. It's kind of annoying because this is the only entry in the Scream saga that has the same title as the 1996 film upon which it was based. And I liked the original Scream film a lot. I didn't get to see it in theaters, but I did see it on video a little while later and I enjoyed it. Scream 2 was also very good. I thought it was a very uh, worthy sequel. And the reveal of who the mass killer was in Scream 2 was, in my opinion, the best twist of the Scream films. I thought the actual twist of the original Scream movie was pretty good. And I saw Scream 3. I didn't particularly care for it, especially given the fact that they had the mass killer again. And I was less concerned with who that mass killer was and more um, just dumbfounded by how the ghost face killer in this film had so many things happen to him, like getting hit by a car or having a bookshelf fall on his head. And somehow he didn't even die from all those things that were happening. He or she, I should say. So here we have uh, the fifth Scream movie. And I didn't see the fourth Scream film because I thought once the third film kind of petered out, you, you might as well just leave it as a trilogy. But this probably should have been called Scream 5, The Search for More Money. But seriously... I don't know why there's this trend of sequels that have come out decades after the original that have the exact same title as the original. One great example of this is the movie Halloween that came out in uh, 2017 that was, of course, an extended sequel to the original Halloween film from 1978. You could have called it Next Halloween. You could have called it Halloween 40 years later, you know, you could have had some title that differentiated it from the original. Same with uh, the 2016 movie of Ghostbusters, which I don't know if it was a sequel to the 1984 movie, but it should have been called something else like the next Ghostbusters or she Ghostbusters, for example. Similarly, if you didn't want to name this, if the Filmmakers didn't want to name this movie Scream 5. They could have called it Scream Again. They could have called it Scream Louder. Actually, Scream Louder I would have seen, or I would have appreciated the creativity in that title. But anyway, this movie takes place 25 years after the original series of murders in the fictional suburb of Woodsboro. And, as you might expect, a new ghost face emerges, and Sidney Prescott must return to uncover the truth. So this movie has various cast members of the 
original three Scream movies, and I'm not sure about the fourth one because I haven't seen it reprising their roles. So, for example, Nev Campbell makes a welcome return as Sidney Prescott, and she still looks good. Just saying. Um, It actually kind of amazes me because she's not an A-lister anymore, and I do think that the same reason that Nev Campbell isn't an A-lister anymore is the same reason that Rose McGowan and Ashley Judd and other people who were famous in the 90s and aughts who were A-listers then and aren't now, I I think there's the similar reason because Harvey Weinstein actively and vindictively ruined their careers because he made a move on them, they rejected it, and he said, fine, I will ruin you. And he did. And he got away with it for decades. And I think, although I'm not entirely positive, that the same thing happened to Nev Campbell. Also, Courtney Cox reprises her role as Gail Weathers, the ambitious-to-a-fault news reporter, and David Arquette reprises his role as Dewey Riley, who is the mild-mannered sheriff of Woodsboro. And David Arquette had his best acting roles in the Scream films. Even in Scream 3, which was subpar, I thought David Arquette was very good. I do think that the movies after the Scream films had David Arquette kind of um, doing sort of uh, a Pauly Shore type uh, comic actor, and he wasn't particularly great as a a lovable dummy. I did actually like him as sort of the Luke Wilson nice guy, and now that he's returned to this uh, kind of role, he's good in it. I really think that uh, he should pursue other roles like this because he's, he's very good. And unfortunately him being in Polly Shore and Tom Green, like movies definitely undermined his talent as an actor. But even though I mentioned the actors who reprise their roles in this film and they get top billing, Nev Campbell is billed first, Courtney Cox second and so on and so forth. They're actually not in the film until the latter half of the movie. Instead, we basically get Unfortunately, Scream retread. So we're introduced to Tara Carpenter, who is played by Jenna Ortega, who coincidentally was also in the movie Studio 666, making a little bit more than a cameo in that film. And she is home by herself. She's calling her friend to get together to watch a scary movie together. And then uh, a mysterious stranger calls and gives her... A, an impromptu quiz about the movie Stab, which is based on the events in the movie Scream. So it's a movie within a film that in this universe is based on a true story. But of course, in our universe of the moviegoers, it is based on fiction within fiction. But anyway, so it's sort of the same kind of setup with Drew Barrymore in the original. She thinks she's safe in the house and even though she has a cell phone and she's able to lock the entire house with a cell phone, it doesn't stop the person who is Ghostface from coming in and stabbing her. And even though she takes a lot of blows by that kitchen knife, she actually survives it, which is kind of unrealistic and also uh, not particularly believable in this case either. So her older sister, uh, Melissa, uh, excuse me, her older sister, Sam is played by Melissa Barrera, and she is trying to get to the bottom of who is donning the ghost face now. And it's kind of amazing because 
a lot of the actors who play teenagers in this film are not teenagers. They're actors in their late teens or actually mid to late twenties. They're, um, they actually were not born. Most of them when the original scream film came out, which makes me feel so old, first of all, but that's no excuse actually for this movie to basically run through the same plot as the original scream. Again, if you were making a tribute, that's, that's okay. But tributes are made for TV or even made for, uh, streaming originals. They're not made for big screen adaptations. And I could feel the generation Z members in this film trying to be meta, trying to be ironic. There's even a joke where there's a guy who's watching the, uh, a, a YouTube critic talk about the latest stab film which is called stab, but it's the eighth stab film in the series. And they're saying they're, they're actually saying they could have called this movie stab eight. They didn't need to call it stab. That's just confusing it with the original. And to me, that's not being ironic. That is being hypocritical because if this movie was called scream five, scream louder and so on and so forth. And that joke was in the film. It would have been funny. It would have referenced Halloween as several other, as well as other requels, uh, which is a term that I really like, coming out decades after the original that take the same title. I don't know why uh, movies do that, but coming out of this film, it, it's less ironic, less you know, um, self-deprecating, and a lot more hypocritical. So Scream was a miss for me. It gets my reading of a strikeout. Because I do actually think when Nev Campbell reprised her role as Sidney Prescott, the movie started to gain a lot more strength. But I was so bored by the monotony of the kills in this film, some of which made me flinch. But it's not so much the kills themselves that were monotonous as much as it was the patterns, which I could totally see. Every time the real killer was going to come out, I knew. And any time there was another fake out with the musical score... I knew it was going to be a fake out. So I really didn't appreciate the meta commentary about how more sophisticated horror films are these days. I didn't really like the generation Z characters. I also didn't really understand why they were so laissez faire about gruesome murders that took place 25 years ago, because that puts a stigma on the entire town. As a matter of fact, why are there even people in this town? I don't exactly know, but when Nev Campbell came back as Sidney Prescott, I thought the film gained a bit more credibility, but consequently by the end, I really didn't care who the murderer was. There was also no explanation in this age of cell phones, how they were able to manipulate tracking devices, as well as home security apps the way they did. There was no explanation whatsoever. You're supposed to take it for face value. So that's why the 2022 version of Scream just doesn't do it for me. It's not just the unoriginal title. It's also the fact that the kills were predictably placed and the explanation as to how the ghost face killer could be tech savvy was under rug swept and it really should not have been.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Blacklight. This is the latest action film starring Liam Neeson, and it is a movie about a government operative named Travis Block who is coming to terms with his shadowy past. When he discovers a plot targeting U.S. citizens, Block finds himself in the crosshairs of the FBI director he once helped protect. Blacklight is another action film with Liam Neeson, and simply put, it is a film, an action film with Liam Neeson that I've seen several times before. It doesn't exactly follow the plot of Taken, for example, where a former secret agent is trying to find his daughter who's been kidnapped, but it might as well because Liam Neeson went from being one of the greatest actors of his generation to doing these monotonous action films. And really, there is nothing memorable about Blacklight. Liam Neeson plays the same kind of tough guy he's been playing for the last... 15 years or so, he is trying to protect uh, somebody who's on the run from the government named Dusty Crane, who's played by Taylor John Smith, who's one of the most bland people uh, after whom the government is trying to chase. And there was actually a good uh, beginning to this film where Travis Block is trying to rescue another agent whose name is Helen Davidson, who's played by Australian actress Yale Stone, who was a great in the movie Orange, uh, excuse me, in the series Orange is the New Black. And she's pretty good in this film, but she's only in it for the first 10 minutes. And I was thinking to myself, why wasn't the film about rescuing this agent as opposed to finding somebody after whom the government um, is, is trying to catch? And there was actually a good supporting performance in this movie by um, Emmy Raver Lampman, who plays a journalist named Mira Jones. And I think she's good, and she does well with what um, she's been given uh, as a character arc. And while I don't, while I haven't seen her in other uh, TV shows, she's currently in two television shows. The first one is called Central Park, and the other one is called The Umbrella Academy, and I've heard raves about her, and truthfully, she's the only person in this film, the only one who actually acts well. But she, as a journalist, uncovers a government conspiracy that her um, publisher, as is standard of such action films, just basically says... Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're wasting my time. People wouldn't want to read about a government conspiracy. And this is like this for about three different scenes. And the movie kind of sputters and ultimately stalls when you realize that the government conspiracy leads all the way up to the... I shouldn't spoil that. But I guess sometimes... Words on Film has a rule that I've instated that's called no spoilers, and I was just about to reveal that this conspiracy leads all the way up to the government. I guess I'll leave you in the dark about what branch of the government, because th there's a scene where basically Liam Neeson confronts somebody who works in the government who he's known for decades, and he just basically grabs him by the shirt and shakes him. And the guy says, okay, okay, I did it. 
And then there are a couple of scenes that don't really matter. And then the movie ends. And it's really kind of a shame because like Tyler Perry, Liam Neeson has painted himself into a corner in his movie career in that he's playing these very bland and not particularly memorable action uh, roles where the world seems to forget that he's Irish. And I don't know if he's supposed to be an American, but like Kevin Costner and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, he just refuses to give up his accent because he plays a guy named Travis Block, which is not an Irish name that I know of. Um, but what's interesting is he was in a movie last year called The Ice Road, which I actually liked. Yes, it was an action film, but it was where Liam Neeson played an ice road trucker who was trying to get a convoy across a literally very thin ice on a lake in Alaska. And the fact that he was honest, his character was honest about having been from Ireland, having immigrated to the United States and worked his way up. I liked that. I liked how Liam Neeson was honest with himself and it actually developed a very good character arc arc for him here. He might as well be played by Steven Seagal. He might as well have the same sort of acting ability as Steven Seagal and Liam Neeson is better than Steven Seagal, but I don't understand why he's getting movies like Steven Seagal, particularly ones that are not particularly well-written, but unfortunately I think Liam Neeson is going to be in these movies for quite some time. It's great that he's still acting, but for the guy who acted as the lead in Schindler's list, not only Stephen King, not Stephen King, Steven Spielberg's best movie, but also one of the greatest films ever made period. I would like to think, I would like to see Liam Neeson go back to some of these more serious roles, or if he's going to be in action films, I'd like to see him better written. But as it stands here, Blacklight is such a forgettable film and it gets my rating of a flunk out. It's a movie that has a lot of characters who could potentially be smart, but it is so forgettable. As a matter of fact, I actually fell asleep halfway through the film. I mean, I didn't fall asleep all the way to the very end. I rarely do, but I do think that Liam Neeson is in a forgettable mess in his career. He's also kind of in the same boat as Bruce Willis in that both of them could actually retire now and live off of the residuals from their previous better movies, especially given how many that Liam Neeson and Bruce Willis have made, but they're in somewhat of a forgettable movie rut. And I don't exactly know how certain actors who reach a certain age and are lucky enough to be in the business for more than five, more than five years get into this rut, but Liam Neeson and Bruce Willis, I hope will get out of it because truth be told, both of them deserve better, but most especially Liam Neeson does.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment of what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters for the weekend of March 4th, 2022. First and foremost, the movie that is going to be released in theaters, um, in even in theaters near you, is a movie that's called The Batman. Is this the first Batman movie? You know it isn't. But it is the DC Extended Universe starting over with the Batman character, especially given that Ben Affleck kind of ruined what Christian Bale built in his character. In other words, Ben Affleck signed off for playing Bruce Wayne and Batman a few years ago, and good riddance to him because he was probably the worst person to play Batman on screen, and that does include Adam West. Yeah, Ben Affleck was just terrible as as Batman in Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and what I've seen of the Justice League film. Although I hear great things about Zack Snyder's director's cut of Justice League, but I haven't seen that yet. I hear it's great, but... The the Justice League from 2018 just disappointed me so much because a movie that has Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash, and Cyborg should not be a bad film. But unfortunately, the DC Extended Universe was in a rush to make the Justice League movie and had it taken its time, had it come out with another Batman film with Ben Affleck, the Wonder Woman film before Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, and maybe a film about Cyborg, Aquaman, and or The Flash before coming out with um, the Justice League, the DC Extended Universe would be in a better place right now. Now, I don't know if The Batman, the movie that's coming out uh, this next weekend, is going to be tied into the same DC Extended Universe that people are going to in the movie, pretend that Ben Affle- uh, Robert Pattinson was Ben Affleck all along. I don't know, but I would be interested to see how this plays out. But anyway, in The Batman, the Riddler is a sadistic serial killer. Interesting. Far cry from Batman Forever. But when the Riddler begins murdering key political figures in Gotham, Batman is forced to investigate the city's hidden corruption and question his family's involvement. As I said previously, Robert Patton is donning the Dark Knight's costume for the first time, and Zoe Kravitz has got top billing in this film over Robert Pattinson as Catwoman. Very interesting. And I really have to see the roster of uh, acting talent in this film. I gotta see who plays the Riddler. The Riddler is played by Paul Dano. Very good choice, interestingly enough. And um, his name is Edward Nashton Nigma. I didn't realize that that was the middle name of the Riddler. And we also have uh, Colin Farrell playing Oswald Cobblepot. For those people who know your um, Batman history, Oswald Cobblepot was the real name of the Penguin. And we also have Andy Serkis playing Alfred Pennyworth. Really good casting here. And uh, Jeffrey Wright playing Commissioner Gordon. My God, this is an amazing cast. So I'm not going to build this up too much, but The Batman is coming out in theaters this coming weekend. 
I will see it. I will see it. And I will review it for you on next week's show. And who knows? This may become the highest grossing film of 2022, or at least for the first half of the year. But we'll see. Another film that is coming out in theaters this coming weekend is a movie that's called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. This is based on a book, and it was also made into a TV movie in the early 90s starring Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Harris. And that movie was called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, I guess given the name Harris a Cockney twang to it, if you want to call it that. But... Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris is about a widowed cleaning lady in 1950s London who falls madly in love with a couture Dior dress and decides that she must have one of her own. And naturally, it goes without saying that she goes to Paris to get that Dior dress. It's based on a novel written by Paul Gallico, which I have not read, but it has a following, particularly in Great Britain. And the woman who plays uh, Mrs. Harris is actually Leslie Manville, who interestingly enough does not get top billing. Instead, um, Rose Williams, who I don't know, is uh, given top billing along with Jason Isaacs and Luke Bravo. So I don't know if this is a film that I will necessarily see, but I will. Um, I'll look it up for you, and I will. Um, If I see it in the theater near me or I see it on streaming, I will let you know what I think on next week's show. So as for movies that are coming out on streaming, there are actually a couple that are coming out the week of February 28th through March 4th, 2022. And many of them are, um, uh, some of them are series and I'm looking through to see if I can find movies that are films that are at least an hour and a half long. There's one film that's coming out on August, excuse me, March 2nd. That's called against the ice. And I would imagine that against the ice is a film about ice skating, either that, or it's about people who fight on ice, which would also make a very good uh, film that I just came up with right here. Actually, it's not about ice skating. It's a movie about, Two explorers in 1909 who fight to survive after they've, they're have they left behind while on a Denmark expedition in ice-covered Greenland. I believe this is based on a true story. It stars uh, Nikolai Koster-Waldu and uh, Joe Cole. So, sounds like a very uh, interesting film. It comes out on March 2nd. Will I see it for you? Maybe. But uh, if I do, I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that's coming out on March 2nd is one that's called The Pirates, The Last Royal Treasure. And I, it sounds like a kid's film, but um, it is a foreign film that is live action. And it's directed by Jung Hoon Kim, so it's South Korean. And it's a sequel to the 2014 movie The Pirates, which I haven't seen. And it is about a sea battle between pirates, bandits, and pioneers who search for a seal that disappeared in a whale attack before the founding of the Joseon dynasty. Sounds amazing. Uh, there's nobody I know who acts in it, but I'll, I might see it for you next week, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. 
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.